Morning, church. All right, let's get it out of the way. Uh, I'm wearing a jacket today. Um, like three or four people have pointed it out already. I don't know why. I just kind of picked it out, and this is what I'm wearing. So there you go. Now it's out there. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, in 2006, Keeney University invited uh, a novelist by the name of David Foster Wallace to come and host their commencement speech for that graduating year. And um, David Foster Wallace, he had written multiple novels, uh, and he was known for kind of like out there stuff. And he, he came and he gave a speech that would soon become one of the most talked about, one of the most well-known commencement speeches in recent history. And he began it with a very short story, and it went something like this. Once there were two fish that were swimming. They were young, and there was an older fish that passed by them one day. And the older fish said to the younger fish, Good morning, boys. How's the water? And after a while, the younger fish swam along, and one of the younger fish turned to the other one and said, What's water? And with that one speech, that short story, David Foster Wallace sums up what he was trying to get at in the whole of his commencement speech. And he sums it up by by this, in this next sentence after the story. He says, The most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. And this is, of course, very true. How often do we find ourselves in the rut of our everyday of, you know, work and soccer practice and baseball practice and PTA meetings and so on and so forth that we miss or overlook the things that actually make life worth living, right? The the real powerful realities that are all around us. Um, what Wallace was, his challenge to this graduating class was that the real value of an education is not totally summed up in a massive accrual of, of knowledge, but is rather found in the skill of practicing the awareness of what he calls the capital T truths of the world. It is developed in fully formed adults who are constantly reminding themselves, this is water. This is water. This is what matters. This is what brings life, meaning, and purpose. Today, uh, we are continuing. Actually, this is the end of a series we've been in for the past few weeks called Welcome Home. The initiative here has been to figure out a way to answer the question, how do we welcome people into our community well? And if you've been around our community for some time, you know, as Jennifer said, uh, as Jill kind of mentioned as well, that we're, we're going through a time of transition And it's difficult because as we're welcoming people home, we're also sending off some of our key leaders. And I think it's left a lot of us with a lot of questions about what's next for our church and where are we going as a community. And I think those are very, very good questions. And I was tempted to not mention it. I was tempted to not talk about it. Um, But instead, what I think I'd rather do and what I think the Lord is wanting for us today is to push into it a little bit, to see what God would have for us in the midst of it, and to ask his blessing on where we go in the future. And so as I was praying, as I was asking God, where do I go? How do I, how do I communicate your word that would also encourage our community? I was brought to James chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and grab them and go to James chapter 1. We'll be living here for most of the, of the sermon today. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, begins like this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
So this is where we're going today. We're, we're going we're gonna to kind of walk through what does it mean for a community of faith to deal with trials well. Because really, when we're welcoming people home, we're welcoming people not to a place, but we are welcoming in, them into a lifestyle of following after Jesus. We are a community of faith, right? Which differentiates us from every other gathering or organization in the world. We are actively trying to look and act instinctively more like Jesus every single day. And so what I hope to do in this sermon today is to, to in, enlighten us a little bit how to do that, give you tools on, on how to, to be a community of faith that is actively living into the, in the transformational life of Jesus, while at the same time stand as a reminder of, listen, if we're going to invite people in, if we're going to welcome people home, we've got to know what we're inviting them into. So if you're new to our community, this is, this is for you too. Like this isn't just for people who've been here for a long time. God's word transcends that and it meets us where we are. But today we are going to press into that. And the way we're going to do is we're going to walk through James chapter 1 through four attributes. And if you have your notes page, I have them listed there at the top. And they are this, joy, prayer, patience, and active listening. Through these four attributes, I, I believe James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us understand how to be a people who are actively changing their hearts to be more like Jesus and the ones that will set up in us a desire to welcome people into something that we are engaged and excited about. So, let's start with joy, shall we? James' first encouragement to his readers is to be glad in the face of all kinds of trials because the knowledge of that God is with us in the midst of those trials and is offering us opportunities to mold our instincts to be more like Jesus. Now, that sentence took me way longer to write than it did for me to just say. Um, But if you were hearing that sentence and you were thinking like, yep, I got that, no problem, trials, I'm happy in trials, I've got it, easy. Let's talk after service because I've got a lot of questions for you on how you do that. Because it's not natural for me to do that. In fact, I would argue that it's probably not natural for any of us to react in this way. And it's almost audacious the way that James just throws it out there. I mean, it's the first sentence in his book. The first thing he says is, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when things are going really, really terrible. Like, it would make a lot more sense if he was like, you know what? Count it all joy when someone brings you cake. Or like... Count it all joy when someone brings you that afternoon coffee when you're falling asleep at your desk. You're like, yeah, James, all right, amen. I believe in that. That's a good word. But that's not what he says. He's like, listen, when things are hard, when they are difficult, the people of God should react with joy. That doesn't mean that we don't grieve in the midst of of difficult times either, but it does mean that there is something in us that is different. There is something in us that reorients our heart and our life toward joy. And so um, I think a natural response to difficult times uh, for many of us comes in two emotions, fear or anger. I'm sure every single one of us in this room can think of a time when we were faced with something hard that really scared us, that really made us nervous about the future, that really made us nervous about our situation, and maybe even got so severe that we got to the point of, of real depression, of real anxiety. And perhaps for some of us, we face something really difficult and our response is like, I'm going to get mine. 
I'm going to be right at the end of this. When it, whatever this ends, it's got to end in my direction, and I'm mad about it. Those are totally natural. And we see those in like little babies, right? It, it's something that just springs up in us. But to react with joy in the midst of really difficult situations, that, that is not natural. That is supernatural. And so therefore, it requires some effort to achieve. So I think what would be helpful to start with this understanding of joy and the importance it plays in the people of God dealing with difficult times is a correct understanding. You see, when we talk about joy, um, actually, I think it's important to know, I mean, you might be interested in this, you might not, but I'm throwing it out there for free. So here we go. Um, When the Bible uses the words joy or happiness, they're actually the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. Um, So the Bible doesn't differentiate between the emotions of happiness and the emotions of joy. Rather, what it does is it talks about it in a totally different context. Because what it says, what it teaches us is that our joy has almost nothing to do with what is going on around us. Almost nothing. Almost nothing to do with our current state. Rather, it has everything to do with our eternal state. Everything. And this is why James can so frankly and audaciously with the first sentence of his book say, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to learn how to have joy in the midst of every situation. The writer of Psalms helps us see this a little bit more clearly, I think. In Psalm 16, verse 11, he says this, you, speaking to the Lord, O Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, in ancient writings, it was very common for ancient writers to talk about one of two paths. The path that leads to life and the path that leads to death. And and this is definitely what the author is kind of hinting at. But the important thing to know is that in Hebrew, the word life is connected to the idea of the Garden of Eden. In other words, when David or whoever wrote this psalm, we think it's David, said, you make known to me the path of life. What he's saying is you make known to me a pathway that leads to complete and total wholeness, absolute perfection where nothing is out of place and everything is alive. And the question is, well, I mean, that's great, but how do you do it? How does God do it? He does it in the making available and the overflow of his presence. Now, I think we need to just kind of like pause for a moment and think about this. Because it, it's, it's kind of a revolutionary thought. That in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Or, or, I think a better way to put it is, in God's presence, there is absolute flourishing. There is absolute life. Again, that, that word life is connected to an actual literal garden where things are like at its peak. And you walk through and, the, and everything is in bloom. Right where it's supposed to be. It's both ordered and beautiful. That comes, that springs out of God's presence. So to, to kind of like put a, an analogy to this, I, I, have, a, I have a quick one. Um, could I just see all my extroverts in the room? Could I just see your hands? Yeah, very eager. No, yep, believe it. Uh, this analogy is going to make almost no sense to you, but like hang with me. Uh, introverts, you don't have to raise your hand. You do not have to do that. But I think you're going to be tracking with me. Extroverts, you'll get it too, for sure. Um, I, I'm an introvert 
And uh, I think a lot of people are sort of surprised when I first tell them that because I'm, I'm a really good faker. I'm really good at it. Um, but what that means, basically, is that if you ever invite me to a party uh, where there's a bunch of people, there's always going to be a, at least a little bit of me that's, like, really uncomfortable. Or, like, oh, I'd really rather, like, be alone right now. Or, like, I'd really rather be reading where people aren't, like, looking at me or, like, near me or, like, talking or touching me or... <laughs> Like, I'd just really rather not be there and be somewhere where I'm alone, right? But still invite me to parties. Like, I like going. I'm just, you just need to know that there's like a little bit of me that's like, that, that's going to happen. Now, imagine this. Imagine that I'm in a room full of strangers where I know no one. And in that moment, I, I mean, I am really, I am actually literally dealing with, okay, I have to go and introduce myself. And that seems like a lot of work. But I need to do it because there are people all around me, and I don't want to be standing in a corner. It's a very difficult situation. All the extroverts are like, what are you talking about? The introverts are like writing stuff down. Like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. But let's say I'm in that room full of strangers, and I see across the way my wife walk in the room. Something changes in me, right? Something is different in me because I know that I can go over to that woman and say nothing to her. Just stand next to her. And be totally at peace. Just by, just by her presence in the room, something in me is different. And, and yes, it, it's like connected to our romantic love to one another, but it's also more, more profoundly connected to our relationship to one another. I have a, an intimate relationship with her that I have with no one else. It is totally set apart. It is different in every way. Maybe not in every way, but in a lot of ways, right? And just by her walking in the room, with me, an introvert, in a room full of strangers, I'm like, oh, thank God, I know someone. And not only that, but they really know me as well. And so you can see the connection that I'm drawing here, right, between my wife walking in the room for me and God's presence in our life. But there's a really important distinction that we need to make. Because when my wife walks in the room, it, like, calms my fears or, like, quells my fears. But when God's presence is made known to his people, it eliminates fears. It annihilates fear, right? Because in his presence comes what? A little bit of joy. No, no, a tiny bit of joy. No, the fullness of joy, the absolute perfection and wholeness of joy comes from God's known presence. So it begins there. Where God is, there is a pathway to life. And I, and I have to say this too. If your joy in Christ is situationally affected, there is more for you. Like if you get really excited about Jesus around Christmas and then it kind of like dies down around New Year's and kind of coasts there, you know, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's no condemnation there for you. But I'm telling you, there's more for you. There is more to experience in life with Jesus than that. Because Jesus offers God's people a joy that is capable of carrying them into the darkest moments of life without them ever losing or ever falling into despair. That is available to the people of God. There is more. And Christ embodies this perfectly as he does everything in communicating a life with God. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews helps us see this in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here we go. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I promise you, I promise you, whatever difficulty you may be facing at this present time, there is no comparison to the difficulty of Jesus facing the cross for our sin. And what, what does scripture say? It says he faced it with joy. I mean, Jesus, Jesus grieved. I mean, he went to the garden and he, he begged God, God, if there's another way, give it to me. I'd love it. I'd love a way out of this. But you know what? If you don't give it to me, your will be done. Because I know the cross is coming, but I know beyond that cross is joy everlasting. is a life of absolute flourishing. So if I've got to go through that to get there, bring it. If you can provide a way out, awesome. But if not, I'm ready to go. That is... That is the response of God's people. That we will walk through difficult times because we know we have a joy that is set in God's presence, which is available to us at any moment because of the work of Jesus. The point I'm trying to get at here is is this. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Joy founded in God, in Him, produces the steadfastness necessary to withstand any trial. And not just to withstand, but to flourish to have real, not, not just to survive, but to absolutely thrive. The next point is um, on prayer. James chapter 1, verse 5 reads like this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, we, we need to recognize this for what it is. This is prayer, right? The first sentence out of James' book is, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face a whole bunch of really difficult times. And James, knowing that that's like not our default, that that's difficult for us, he's like, it's all right. If any of you lacks wisdom on how to do that, ask God. And, and the people of God's response to that should always be like, you know what? Yep, I, me, I need that. What, whatever wisdom you've got, I want more of it because I'm not quite sure how to do this perfectly. So God, whatever you got, I'm ready for it. Brent, me, me, I need wisdom, please. But if our response isn't quite there or isn't that, I think James has something to say. And this is kind of a difficult teaching, but I think it's important for us to hear. In James chapter 1, verse 6, right after verse 5, he says this, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, let me be clear. I I don't think that James is condemning doubt. The reason I don't think that is because of a story of Jesus. After Jesus had risen from the dead, some of his disciples knew about it and some of them didn't. Thomas was one of those who didn't. And... Uh, some of the disciples gathered, they all gathered together and they brought Thomas in like, Thomas, you're never going to believe this. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas basically says, I'll believe it when I see it. Which is an understandable thing to say, by the way, like someone rising from the dead. Come on. So he's like, I'll believe it when I see it. And the Bible then says that Jesus appears in the room or like walks through a wall to get in the room. And, and then what Jesus doesn't do is, is 
march up to, uh, march up to Thomas and be like, you fool. You didn't believe me. You didn't believe I could do it. You're bad, Thomas. I'm mad at you. That is not what he does. Rather, he goes up to Thomas and he was like, here you go. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Do you, you want to touch my hands? You, you want to touch my side or, or my feet? Go ahead. Thomas' response to that is, Lord, I believe. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen and believed, but blessed are those even more so who will not see, and yet they will still believe. So anyways, God meets us in our doubt. He's not intimidated by it. So I don't think James is, is throwing doubt in the gutter here. Rather, what I think he's doing is he's cautioning us against a flippant understanding of prayer and to the one to whom we pray. You see, when we come to God for wisdom, we cannot expect him to say what we want him to say or to say what we want to hear. It's not the way it works. We need to understand that God is not interested in our plans working out. He is interested in our hearts being transformed and living fully flourishing lives here and into eternity. So that means God can and will interrupt our plans in order to get us to the point where we're like, God, I need you. Be thou my vision. Oh, Lord, oh, my God. God is, is eager to hear his people pray that prayer. Because what it's saying is, you know what? Even if I have to endure the cross, God, I know that something's on the other side. And it's you. It's you. So I'm with you. I'm with you. The point I'm getting at here is, is this. Poor... Prayer is the spiritual act of forming our hearts to the heart of Jesus. This action is what prepares us to respond with joy in tumultuous situations. Because the more we do it, the more we train our hearts to listen to God and seek his wisdom. And the more we will find that it is only in him that the pathway of life and flourishing makes any sense in the first place. So the, fir- the first point was, you know, joy. Like, we are to be a people that responds with joy. The second point, prayer, is how we do it. We pray it into our lives. We, we, we make it matter. And, and we, we trust God that he's going to respond to us. And that when he does, we go with him. I think this is a good spot to, to just kind of pause and remember what I'm trying to do here today is to preach God's word so that we can become the kind of community that is radically different than the rest of the world. That is subversively different. That, that, that we have a reputation not of people who do good, not of people who have great programs, but people who are following Jesus. Period. Let that be our reputation in Jesus' name. You see, we are not primarily inviting people into a place. We are inviting them into a new life, and a flourishing life at that. The third point I want to make is on patience. In verse 12 of James chapter 1, this is what James has to say. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the word that's translated as steadfast in Greek can also mean patient. But let me tell you why a lot of, 
not all, but a lot of New Testament scholars will translate it as steadfast. It is because in our culture we have an understanding, or uh, yeah, in our culture we have an understanding of the word patient as inactive waiting. We have all either been in the car with our parents, or you are those parents where the kid is in the backseat and they are done. Like they are done being on the road trip. They want to go to the bathroom. They just don't want to sit still anymore. And the, the parent's response is like, you need to learn patience. Or maybe more realistically, like you need to chill out because I'm driving this car right now. Both are acceptable. I've even seen it in a, um, in a restroom at a, at a, at a restaurant. I, w- I walked in and I, and I saw this like sign on the toilet that said, you know, this is, toilet is broken. We thank you for your patience. Like, what you're really thanking me for is, like, not making a mess that you have to clean up, right? What you're thanking me for is, like, not doing anything to ruin this kind of situation you got. And someone's already ruined it, which is why you put up the sign in the first place, probably. So sorry for you. Anyways, in our culture, patience means, like, stop. Patience means cut it out. Don't do anything. But the reason a person is blessed in James' book is not because a trial came up before their face and they sat on the ground and did nothing. That is not why a person is blessed. That is not a steadfast version of patience. Rather, it is because they knew who won in the end. They were able to put their confidence in the one who had the victory, which is Jesus. And they got busy bringing heaven to earth. You see, patience in a very biblical understanding is that of endurance. But not the kind of endurance that like you just have to endure in order to get to the next day, but the endurance that a marathon runner has to have. You have to be patient because the end is coming. You know it's coming, but you've got to run your heart out to get there. You've got to move. You've got to do something. One of the most pervasive themes in the New Testament is that of endurance, which actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because in the early church, a lot of people were losing their life because they were following after Jesus. And and the church leaders, knowing this, had to encourage people like, don't give up, don't give in, endure, keep going, keep building God's, don't lose your faith. Even if you have to lose your life, don't lose your faith, endure keep going, keep building. That is the kind of patience that James is talking about here, the steadfastness. The point here is this. In times of trials, we are called to be patient and know that God has already won the victory in Jesus. I promise you, whatever battle you are up against right in this moment, whatever you find yourself up against, its victory is pronounced in Jesus' death and resurrection. Part of our job is figuring out how that fits into our current situation. That is the job of the people of God. The last point I have here is that on active listening. In James 1.19, he writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um. This is where the rubber of spiritual maturity meets the community of faith because Christians should be the best listeners in the whole world. The reason I say that is because of who God is. God is the creator of the universe, the most powerful force. We believe him to be the most powerful force 
in all of the universe, and he makes time for me, like a nobody. And not only makes time for me, but like provides for me, provides for me my life, my happiness, my fulfillment. So in following his example, my response then is, yep, okay, I can learn to listen. If he can do that for me, the same principle, the reason we love is because he first loved us. The reason we listen is because he first listened to us. Now, there are two types of listening I want to quickly address. The first is that of listening to others. And and that's kind of what I just talked about, right? That the reason we do that is because God did it for us and continues to do it for us. And so in order to perpetuate that kind of love, we listen to other people. We really, truly listen to other people so that they feel heard and valued and cared for. That is an attribute of the people of God. But maybe a more important attribute of the people of God is listening to God himself. And I call that spiritual listening. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of spirituality as some like ethereal thing that is off in the universe somewhere. But spirituality in the biblical context is very earthy things, very dirt covered thing. It's something that we can put our hands on. This is not for the spiritual elite. This is for every one of us here in this room. We all do it. We all can do it. In spiritual listening, we are actively aligning our whole person with the ways and being of God. And a great example of this is this right here. We are all right now involved in a spiritual moment where the word of God is going forth. And you have the choice to either align with yours, not with me, not with what I'm saying, but with the truth of God's word to align your heart underneath it and be transformed by it. You have that opportunity every single Sunday. Hopefully, though, it's not your only time, right? Hopefully, it continues into the week. Because James knows that there is an intrinsic danger in spiritual listening because it's easily faked. You can say the right things, you can do the right things in here, but it doesn't matter when you leave. It doesn't matter. So therefore, he teaches us that the product of spiritual listening is action, is work, is doing things, is building God's kingdom. That's why I entitled this active listening. This is not listening just to fill your head with ideas. It's listening to mobilize your heart to get ready to do things for the kingdom of God in your context, in your community, in your church, at your job, with your family. So what does it look like to do this? Well, if I can be very honest with you, um, that's kind of the journey that we each get to go on ourselves. I could tell you, I could give you a whole bunch of options of what it could look like, and I'll do that in, in a moment. James says that it looks like visiting orphans and keeping yourself unstained from the, from the sin of the world. And that's very true, but, but that's not it. God's kingdom evolves that, but it is more than that as well. And part of the joy of following Jesus is you get to find where you fit in this. Fred, Frederick Buechner, another Christian novelist um, and activist, once wrote this. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. Isn't that good? The world needs Jesus, friends. And the world needs the church. But I think a, a helpful question to ask you, a question that I often ask myself is, is this. 
what can I do that will stir up my affections for Jesus? When I was um, engaged with, to my wife, a lot of men who had been married for a long time came to me and they were like, never stop dating your wife. Never stop dating your wife. Never stop dating your wife. And the reason they said that is because we all need to remind ourselves of, of why we love each other, right? And it, at once Kelsey and I had Olive, everyone was like, don't stop dating. Like, don't stop dating. I'm like, yo, I haven't slept in four days. And they're like, don't care. Like, don't stop dating. Store up your affections for your wife. She's the most important per- person in your life. Figure it out. Figure it out. And you know what? They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. The moment I stop caring, the moment I start stirring up my affections for my wife is the moment my marriage starts to die. And I'm telling you, the moment you stop stirring up your affections for Jesus, not not only your relationship with Jesus starts to die, but I think, and I really believe this, parts of who you are starts to fall off because we are created in God's image and desire relationship with the divine. We need it. So that's a helpful question to figure out how to meet the world's hunger with your great gladness. Now, in order to, to close today, I want to go back to David Foster Wallace. Um, David, uh, not long after he gave the commencement speech at Keenan, um, committed suicide. And he left a note to his family and friends explaining why he committed suicide. And he basically said in so many words, He couldn't find the capital T truths of the world for himself. Not only that, but he couldn't find a group of people to introduce him to the capital T truths of the world. Now, I I don't know David Foster's Wallace's life. I I don't know if he was around Christians. I don't know if he had Christian friends or family. I don't know. But what I do know is that what he was looking for finds its end in Jesus. I really believe that. That the reality of this world exists And that reality is God himself. And so if we are to be a community that's welcoming people home, we need to be a community that's welcoming people into God. Into his presence. Because a life with him offers an honest joy that is planted in good soil. It offers a new perspective on connecting with an eternal being who instead of giving into whatever we want, pushes us to become who we were made to be, who never compromises our identity for a quick fix. A life with Jesus teaches us resolute patience, the kind that never produces anxiousness, but prepares one's heart for the day ahead because the day has already been won out of no work of our own, but on, but on our behalf. Lastly, it offers a new kind of listening. The type that doesn't just inform, but motivates us to partner with God and the good he is doing in the world. The kind of listening that stirs up our affections for Jesus because it proves over and over again that the place God has called us is the place where our gladness meets the world's deep hunger. God has called his church, God has called this church to explain, to exemplify to the rest of the world what the capital T truths of reality are. See, in Him, we live and move and have our being. We are to be a church that welcomes people home because at the end of the day, it's not our home. It's our Father's. And He loves having guests. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would go forth today and that it would fall on good soil. 
Um, Jesus, I, I pray that we would be inspired to, to reorient our lives a little bit more, that we would pray that joy that we need, uh, that sustains us through difficult times, especially in the, in the life of our church right now. We would pray that, Lord, that, that your sustaining joy would be with us and it would point us towards a better future, a better tomorrow, God. God, I also pray that we would be zealous for people outside of our church, those who know you and those who do not know you, and that we would welcome them into not just a place, but into a lifestyle where we are living into the rhythms of God. That the reality of, of your existence and your presence would be made known to them. So God, I pray that just as you have done for us in welcoming us home, that we would then in turn welcome others into your presence. Lord, we trust you and love you in Christ's name. Amen.